Welcome to Speaking Out. We're mainly discussing land rights and economic empowerment. Aboriginal enterprises in mining, exploration and energy. To talk a little bit about uh, Indigenous constitutional recognition. Those With Larissa Berendt. It's a fresh view coming on ABC Radio. The diversity in response, from my point of view, is a good thing because we have the people with the skill and the kindness and the intelligence to weave all those words and thoughts and concerns and hopes together to say, this is what we want to yarn to you about. This is where we think we can go together. I'm worried about everybody wanting to have a plan that engages in an endpoint like that because people aren't like that. Where do we go from here? This is Speaking Out. I'm Larissa Berendt. Following the federal election in May, we have seen a record number of women and First Nations people take office. It's our most diverse parliament in history, something which has been attributed to an increased appetite from the broader Australian community for change. So with this in mind, what political reforms need to be made to improve outcomes for First Nations people? Is a voice to Parliament the answer? Will it succeed at a referendum? And how can non-Indigenous Australians contribute to progressing issues within Indigenous affairs? These were the key ideas explored during a recent panel discussion hosted by the Sydney Opera House. Facilitated by Indigenous consultant Jason Glanville, the conversation featured writer and musician Nadi Simpson and Associate Dean Indigenous in the Business Faculty at the University of Technology, Sydney, Professor Noreen Young. This referendum question will be about a voice to Parliament, an Indigenous voice to Parliament. And Nadia, I wanted to start with you um, and reflect on, I think it's, um, if it's not the final words, among the final words of the Uluru Statement, which is in, in 67 we were counted in this referendum we want to be heard. Do you think there's a risk that if the voice gets up, we might not be heard? And and what's what's the, as, you know you're one of our great storytellers. How, how, what, what's what's the art of getting Australians to listen properly? Listen. It's not one conversation would be my first response. Uh, in my mind's eye, I can see just like that blue light up there, blue and red light. If you imagine, all they're all little conversations that are happening with different types of people gathering towards like-minded souls speaking about the stuff they want to talk about. A lot of different yarns is not a problem. We're actually experts at that. We know how to do that. Mm. And weaving, we know how to weave those yarns together. So the diversity in response, from my point of view, is a good thing because we have the people with the skill and the kindness and the intelligence to weave all those words and thoughts and concerns and hopes together to say, this is what we want to yarn to you about. This is where we think we can go together. I think this kind of channel, I'm worried about everybody wanting to have a plan that engages in an endpoint like that mm. because people aren't like that. Mm. It needs to be like this. Well, like this. Mm. Mm. Yeah. Mm. We've got to remember that in this debate where it can get really mm. um, kind of cerebral and 
structured mm. in a way that this fella here mm. and this fella here is a long way behind the yarn mm. because actually we are champions of that mm. and you fellas are too. Sometimes you just need to be encouraged to be more that. And the one thing I do know is that there's always conversations and always songs and always stories and always the, the yarn is happening mm. in many different ways. Mm. So if you can't hear that they're blocked, that's probably the plea I have. Listen with your whole body, not just your mind, maybe. Easy to say, you know, much harder to do. Yeah, but so critical though, and it also speaks to timing too, I think, because there's this drive to get it done in a particular way in this, in this yeah. period of a new government. And I think that, that, that risks all, all that you're talking about. How do you unplug... People have clearly listened to the Uluru Statement, but have they, have they heard the plea? Mm. Have they heard the work that sits mm. behind it? Mm. And also I, I, I think the, the time and space to, to broaden out to capture the conversations that we know are happening in mm. communities. And I'm sure that's part of the next phase mm. of the work. It's just been a bit hard to see at the moment. And I, I want to come back to the role of artists in that conversation. Mm. But um, as you were saying, Nadi, so much of this is sort of at the moment um, as it maybe needs to be is sort of an intellectual exercise amongst the political class and it isn't really as dispersed as it needs to be. And also I think what's interesting about what's happening at the moment is there's a there's continual references to it, this conversation having started very recently and, of course, yeah. it's a very old conversation. Mm. And speaking of, of old conversations in, uh, and their impact in the moment, Noreen, we had a, shared a very emotional story this week about the connection that has... I'm to, happy to share it ..to again. parts of our history. But yeah. I, I think it, it, it's, a, it's a very recent concrete example of when people do listen, when the yeah. system is prepared to respond yeah. and, and to and to shift power yeah. and provide space, good things can happen. So do you want to tell us that story? Um, yeah, I'd love to. And, uh, and it goes to the relational stuff between us and in, in my own particular case, my own mixed heritage. And I think people don't know a lot of this stuff about us, so about blackfellas. So, uh, so the job summit was on... Thursday and Friday, the week before last, and I was at, and, and the government, the different ministers held a whole lot of roundtables, and I got an invitation. I'm an employment um, practitioner and professor, and I got an invitation to the one that was held by the Minister for Indigenous Affairs, and, Sen and Senator McCarthy was going to be there, and Senator Dodson, and it was about, it said, remote jobs program. And I knew that that was going to be the focus um, for First Nations people um, at the job summit. And I was a bit worried. I didn't know what was going to happen. And I, I, I don't know if people understand this, but um, for the last, I don't know, eight years, um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in remote communities have been working for no pay and I, I think what the relational piece here is, is that we held, as Jason said, for the very first time, a First Nations Employment Alliance um, pre-job summit. And obviously the focus for the ACTU was the CDP program, as we call it, because they formed 
of First Nations Workers' Alliance about eight years ago and have been organising around that since then. And what I don't think this country realises in all the narrative about sit-down money and jobs for blacks and putting blackfellas into employment that um, people like to narrate about is that Aboriginal stockmen in the Territory, in the Northern Territory, were employed by the pastoralists, by Lord Vesty from the famous song. Um, And what the Wave Hill walk-off was actually about is that them mob went on strike for eight years. And it wasn't just about land rights, it was about equal pay. So they were paid legally, like women. Women earned two-thirds of a man's wage legally in Australia until the late 60s. Aboriginal people could legally be paid less. And those stock people, because there were some women... There weren't just men. On those huge holdings in the Northern Territory were paid less. So they went on strike for eight years to, be, to have equal pay. And the ACTU ran a case in, in the old Arbitration Commission for equal pay and they got it and they were awarded equal pay and advocate for the ACTU. And, it's, and the decision in that matter, if you're a junkie for these things... Um, is the most interesting thing because it goes to the relationality and the best bits of what settlers brought to this country who had come from oppressed places. So the notions of trade unionism and fair pay and equal pay for equal work, even though Aboriginal people and women didn't get it till later, we were still better off, and my analysis would say, within that fair system where we had the harvester judgment and the basic wage, right? So a man, a white man, had to earn enough to feed and clothe his family. Women and Aboriginal people were worse off in that. But then there were the equal pay cases. So, But the response of the employers who were the pastoralists, was not to pay it, to pay equal pay, it was to sack them all. So all those people who had worked and built that industry up were then sacked and that's what led to sit-down money. That was all good and there were community... In the 70s, Malcolm Fraser, to his credit, introduced the Community Development Employment Programme and it became the Community Development Program, and mob were paid. Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander were paid social security. They were not paid wages or super. So that, to me, is A, the relational bit, but B, the bit that where in the Constitution we don't have control over our own affairs, you can suspend the Race Discrimination Act like they did in the Northern Territory intervention and in this instance. So people in this country were not paid. That just is extraordinary to me, just extraordinary. And people don't know about that. So so we go to this meeting last, the Tuesday before last, and there's those three ministers and they announce that and, and it was like... I, they, so it was announced by Minister Burney that stroke of a pen and that's all changing and those people will now be paid, they will be proper jobs 
um, led by community. And Senator Dodson said at the end, and I I don't know if I'm meant to repeat this, but I'm going to. (laughs) Senator Dodson said, this is the beginning of the unfinished business, I'm going to cry again, of the Wave Hill walk-off. And that is the relational bit around the labour movement, its industrial wing, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Sally McManus made us, the president of the ACTU, made a speech at our um, Indigenous-led forum on the Monday and said, really, the story of the relationship between the trade union movement and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people is actually the story of this place. Mm. And she owned it and said, we've been good and we've been shit. And that is absolutely true. And to me, this is the promise of the voice to parliament. Yeah, thank you for that. It it is a really interesting piece of history, I think, and it's worth going into that level of detail. So thank you for that. Because it goes goes to the question of um, unplugging Australia's ears, I think, because that's that's almost a 60-year narrative. That's a 60-year journey, right? And Nadi, do you think, and again, I mean your experience as an Aboriginal woman, but leaning on you as an artist. Do you and the people that you're... We were talking before about the, the, the post-COVID freedom for the art, artist community now to make work and to, to, to talk about things. Are, are people listening differently now? Do you think this new or, or so-called new political climate... Are, are, are the nation's ears more open? Well, as for you, fellas, it's good to see people here. Mm, it's great. And then, actually, you know, yeah, the yarn sits in our lap, but its success lies with you and who you talk to and who you engage with and who you can infect in a beautiful way. Mindful that we've come off lockdown and disease and new wave of that now. And I have faith in people. Mm. And we will be judged by what happens now. I believe in us. And, you know, when all these yarns, thinking, talking, and what do I know? I write and sing. What, what good is that? It can make people feel good about these big things, maybe. Or it can make people feel scared about these big things. Mm. But, you know, thinking, talking about, you know... Uh, Dr Martin Luther King and the Freedom Rides. And, you know, my dad was at the pool in Walgett when they went there. He was 13. I asked him, ask him about it, you know, and he doesn't talk much. What happened when that bus came in? No, I didn't go down there. I said, why not? You know, he's me sitting in Sydney thinking, you were at the point of this historical wave coming through a town that was going to, you know, actually be bowled over. Did you go down the pool? No, I didn't go down there. Why not? No. I didn't know about that business. The wave crashed, Mm. the bus continued, Mm. and he was placed in that moment in history. Mm. And here we sit now talking about this. Mm. And so that yarn for him about being not knowing what it was that was happening on his doorstep and not wanting to engage, I can actually then write the next verse to that. Mm. And that story continues, you know. That's the power I see as an, an artist or creative person that, you know, you're always looking for material and we make it up, but sometimes it's actually, it's writing you, you know. Mm. It's writing you into the script. 
And so the thing that I feel about this, all that string, you know, coming through Simpson family, sitting here looking at you, how amazing to think, you know, my dad is a 13-year-old not going to the pool in Walgett. That story includes you right now. You're in that story. This is the pool. It's the other entrance. Mm. And we're all there mm. waiting for those old, you know, those old, old school mm. turnstiles. <laughs> now we're all this beautiful little diverse little line mm. at, the, uh, at the back entrance. Mm. That's how I think about it, you know. And, you know, when I look, look at what all that mob trying to do, and have this like speak to these huge buildings and structures and parliamentary systems systems and but the blackfellas who are involved in that I know for a fact want to uplift me because mm. mm. that's how we taught eh and in turn I want to uplift of course my own mob but everyone that turns up to things like this you know so I get very excited about seeing this moment as part of a story that we're actually all active authors of. That's the challenge, I think, for us as Australians. We can write this. We need to listen. We need to feel. And the feeling thing is hard because you've got to be vulnerable and open and all that stuff. That's writer and musician Nadi Simpson. You also heard from Associate Dean Indigenous in the Business Faculty at the University of Technology, Sydney, Noreen Young, and facilitator Jason Glanville. They were speaking at the recent Antidote Festival hosted by the Sydney Opera House. You're listening to Speaking Out. It just comes down to showing, sharing, you know, respecting. The world from an Indigenous perspective on ABC Radio. This is Speaking Out on ABC Radio, Radio National, Radio Australia on podcast and the ABC Listen app. I'm Larissa Berendt and if you like what you're hearing, why not rate us on your app and that way other people can find us and hear our stories as well. A change of government and greater diversity in Parliament has brought on a sense of renewed optimism within Indigenous affairs. But what further work needs to be done to ensure greater outcomes for First Nations people? And what are the challenges moving forward? This was a central focus of a recent panel discussion hosted by the Sydney Opera House. And we'll bring you more from the conversation shortly, but right now, some music. And all you see was it the came to me that night? A conjuring I held on to that moment in life is to make it
That's Dan Sultan with his cover of Boy and Bear's Southern Sun, a song he recorded for Triple J's Like A Version. This is Speaking Out. That's the key to it all, keeping connected to country. On ABC Radio. Let's return now to the recent Antidote Festival hosted by the Sydney Opera House. Where Do We Go From Here was a panel discussion facilitated by Indigenous consultant Jason Glanville. The conversation aimed to explore the impact of greater diversity in politics and whether meaningful change for First Nations people is really on the agenda. Joining the conversation were Nadi Simpson and Professor Noreen Young. I think, you know, Noreen, you finished off by talking about what you sensed was part of the hope of uh, the, this, this referendum. And, um, you know, Nadia, I love that idea of us you know, going through the turnstile and the question is what do we come out the other end of the turnstile looking like as a country? And you, we have to expect and hope beyond hope that it's different to what it was even back when the, the freedom rides were happening because while the experience of racism that kept your dad from going to the pool mm. uh, isn't always as overt in cities and towns as it was then. We know that it's ever-present. Um, this, this joint effort to a new version of what's possible in Australia, I think, um, to, to expand on what you've both already talked about, but how do non-Indigenous Australians, outside of turning up at the turnstile and ticking the yes box, what is the work of non-Indigenous Australians? How do they do that without offending culture and First Nations people? How do we do it together, I guess, is... is the, a very strong theme that's coming through in these questions. Noreen? Well, Jason and I had a bit of a phone conversation about um, what we'd say yesterday. And, and to go to uh, all of that and, and things that Nadi said, I see this period as, as hopeful and an opportunity to reset the place, not just for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, but for all of us. And, and many of us represent, a, you know, a variety of, of heritages of the place, many blackfellas. And as Nadi said, it's gratifying, it's lovely that you're here, right? And if you're here, you must be interested. And I've heard, um, and this is the reset, right? So where our generosity and how we operate as people is I would like to see that reset where this place emulates the, the generosity of our people and our community. I, so I think we can draw on, as Nadi says, everything of all of you and all of us and how we want to see this place, reset it, draw on the generosity and the goodwill of everyone to reset it. And that very much goes to that there's this very strong thread, not surprisingly, in the questions. And as you've both said, you're all here because um, you're interested. And the questions reflect a desire to be more than interested, but to be engaged and useful. But Nadia, there's a strong theme about how do we do that without offending? How do we do that without getting in the way? We, we acknowledge this is, a first, this is first Australians' business. I mean, in fact, what you've both said, it's all of our business. There's, there's a particular question here that says, what's the single thing um, that non-Indigenous people can do to make a significant change? And I'll give you complete licence to name five things if you want. Uh -huh. um, I, think, I, think, but I think it goes to the heart of the challenge of, you know, we, we change the constitution so infrequently and that should absolutely be the case. It's the rule book. Um, these changes mean more over time than they do 
in the moment, beyond the, the hope of the moment. And I, just, I don't think in this campaign, and maybe it's not time yet, but I know historically in campaigns that I've been involved in, we've never been very good at saying to non-Indigenous allies, here's, here's the work of the 97%, and we just take more and more mm. on ourselves. Yeah. So how would you respond to what's, yeah. what's the work to be done for non-Indigenous people? Yeah, that's a really... I think, with respect, this is where it's tricky, right? Because for it to be done in a way that is empowering and recognisable and safe to us, it's a series of ongoing things through a lifetime. It's not one or even five. And that shit is scary. What I think we're asking for, what a reset is, that's also a good thing. You know, I'm the wrong person to ask this question to, Jace, because what I think I am interested in and my family may be interested in and my community might be on board uh, for being part of is a genuine relationship that is ongoing, that is not about things, that has give and take as a constant through the days we breathe and walk on country. Mm. That's a big ask. But actually that's the way we get around. Mm. And that is what makes us special Mm. because we operate in those ways. That's how meaning is created, to me anyway. Um, I wish I had a one-point answer, but I don't think it's—I don't think it's the question can be answered that way. Yeah, I think I, sh- I should—I should note that the person says you beautifully answered their question, so don't feel too bad about that. But I—I I, I think it, it, it is the perfect answer off the back of—and I don't want to—I don't want to tread back onto your reset comments, Noreen, because it's just so true. We really should just ponder that idea that what, what does that reset look like what does the because you know as as Aboriginal people in with different experiences around the place and acknowledging that the three of us come with you know clearly some shared ambition for this thing but quite different ways of of engaging with it and thinking about it and there should never be an expectation that three blackfellas would ever <laughs> think or feel the same way about anything and nor, and nor should no nor, nor should nor, nor should be but the other thing that's true about the cut and thrust of, of the, the real politic of, of being Aboriginal in this country, you know, it's still a political act to wake up Aboriginal in this country, to walk, mm. to drive, to be Aboriginal in this country is a political act, whether you like it or not. And you don't have to be a political actor to be, to be part of that play. Uh, it's, it's done to you whether you like it or not. And the truth of that is that we're used to the chaos. We're used to the chaos and, the, you know, Dr King's question about do we head that, at that intersection between economic justice and racial equity, is that, does that intersection take us smoothly to community or does, is it a car crash of chaos? Because we've been in, we're the ones in the cars, not always, we haven't been driving it, but we're the ones who have been subjected to the violence of that chaos. Mm. We're used to responding to it with the, mm. the adaptation and the, the resilience, which gets overworked. Creativity. Used, but the creativity, the adaptation, yeah. the... You know, I mean, you don't get to be the, we don't get to be con- connected to the oldest continuous living culture on the planet by accident. That that inherent adapt- capacity and culture of adaptation and creativity and reinvention uh, is critical to who we are, and we've had to do so much more of that in the last 230 years as opposed to the 80,000 years prior to that. 
And I, I, wonder, I wonder if part of the hesitation for good people, people of goodwill, is the fear of that chaos, the fear of that, the change. How, how, do we, how do we share, as much as we want to share the generosity and wisdom, how do we share the capacity to manage that change? How do we, what's, how, how do we exchange those tools with people who don't, in their day-to-day lives, and you know, thank goodness for that, mm. have to deal with that level of chaos and change? And, and I don't think that there's very few people who, non-Aboriginal people, who have experience of anything and and easy i mean my experience as a white passing person is is very different to other people's right so but i think it's really interesting obviously i don't have you know that kind of um appearance based I, my experience isn't that appearance based racism but i come from a family where some people do mm. right so it's this bizarre experience i was going to say it's so interesting to think about dr king and He's talking about the, our uh, referendum in that con- in the context of Dr King because really what you can do... He was so good at mobilising, mm. right? And the African-American experience of organising is extraordinary and bringing allies in. And I reckon what you can do is... I've been involved in a lot of campaigns in my time and they're hard and they're boring, mm. right? So the real work is... Letterboxing, and uh, it'll be phone banking, I would say, in this case. Um, it'll be supporting the talks in your workplace because wherever you work, especially corporate Australia, is wanting to be so involved in it. And that's an interesting development, even since Dr King's day, of that kind of civil rights movement organising. But I think if you look at marriage equality... That was that you know upfront was Magda and all the LGBTQ plus people as it should have been, but there was an army of my favourite person that emerged during that period was Jeff the Plumber. Remember Jeff the Plumber who went on Q and A and said, "My son, I follow him on Twitter. We're really good mates." Uh, he said, "One of my children can get married and the other can't," and he was. And so I think we need all of you people of goodwill to be involved in the campaign, as boring as that may be, to be talking to... Like um, in the Irish marriage equality campaign, their thing was getting LGBTIQ people to talk to relatives Mm. and say, but this is me you're talking about. So, um, But it's that stuff about the campaign will need that kind of mass... Mobilisation, I suppose, like Dr King um, utilised so incredibly well. Yeah, and I guess, and the other the other tip, I guess, is not to wait to be invited. Mm. It's your constitution. It's our constitution. It's your constitution too. If you're non-indigenous, so create the space, invite the conversation. If um, one of the questions here is how, which is the perennial question of how do you, people engage more directly and respectfully with local. Mm. traditional owners with culture in the places where they live, I think the answer to that is it's so much more, so much easier now than it ever was mm. yeah. before. Yeah. Just as simple, simple as the local library have yeah. more resources, but yeah. you know, the, um, any elders group love a yarn and a cup of tea. <laughs> yeah. you know, the land councils have, yeah. um, can, uh, are geared up to give advice and, and support. I guess uh, avoid, the f- avoid the fear of offending because if you enter with genuine goodwill and care, you're not, you're not going to offend. It's more offensive, I think, 
to sit back and not participate because of the fear. We are moving into in question time. I want to at least try to be a, um, a good host. And there's, there's a question here that I think is really interesting um, and it doesn't detract us too much, but we were all of us discussing yesterday on the phone quickly, um, uh, laughing at a, at a few things, but um, I have to always remind myself uh, this was the empty vessel theory that to assume... I've, I always assume that because we live it and we hear it all the time, that other Australians know, you know, a lot more than they do. And, and yeah. not, not to... I'm sure this is a yeah. highly engaged and educated uh, room full of people. But the, quest, the question here is... Um, so what's the one thing that people tend to forget in these conversations? What do we, what's important to remind people about as they walk into this work? When I'm listening and thinking about this, and it's a difficult thing, people hold the key. People to people, for me, is the key. The interaction and exchange and the connection you can have with a person gives you a whole lot of emotive... Um, context that you won't get if you source it in another way. And that's the beauty of it, but it's also the danger of it because that's why, you know, people say, well, I don't want to offend. Mm. So how can I do that without talking to a person? You know, I'm being facetious. Guaranteed, you find someone who will sit down and have a yarn with you. It will make you tingle from, mm, mm, because our mob are very good at speaking our truth that includes you. Mm. Our story is soaked with you in good ways and bad ways, and we look after the people we tell stories to because that's our currency, you know. So, you know, something that I am, I think is really important, interaction with another person. Actually, we can live the constitutional change. We can practice it before we even get to go and vote. Mm. We can do it, person to person on a singular level. And, you know, that I think is a beautiful thing, a, a challenging thing, but don't worry, we've got you. Yeah, and I guess part of the message, again, to what you've both been saying, but particularly around the, the decade up to 67, you know, people, it was church halls and it was town yeah. halls and it was people's yeah. living rooms, and the meeting yeah. went ahead whether there was one person there or not. Mm. Sometimes the mob were talking to each other. Mm. To, and you know, they got a chance to refine their messages because no one showed up, but they they still mm. held the meeting. I think that's part of, you know, the, the intent is as important as the outcome. I think. And there's a a, a great question, Noreen, that comes back to something you were saying. It, but um, uh, is there anything that well-meaning allies tend to do that may not realise is problematic and unhelpful? Oh. Don't start a Twitter war. <laughs> um, I had. Someone who is a well-meaning ally said to me, about six months ago, my daughter wants to work with Aboriginal people. And I'm so immersed in... Because I work in an Indigenous institute in um, a university and, um, and, and, of course, Indigenous-led policy, that I don't think I handled it very well um, and, and I'm so immersed in the politics of Indigenous-led all the time that I, I kind of, I think I was, as you say, Jason, not understanding of that people just don't know, right? So people who aren't around us don't know that stuff. 
And so I, I think I said something like, um, well, there's just not room for her, right? <laughs> something classic Naz um, and tactless. And then I said to my sister later, who's equally as tactless, you know her, um, uh, probably more tactless, um, uh, because we're Scots and Swedes as well as blackfellas and, you know, there's a lot of genetic mixing of kind of directness. And she said, well, why didn't you say why? And I thought that is the... it's That would have been the proper response, right? So... um. And I don't, I often, I've been really contemplating this lately because I'm advocating for someone in a racism matter at the moment, which I haven't done for a long time. And and we do live in a parallel universe, right? Our world <laughs> is Blackfella world and, and it is a parallel universe. And, you know, the, the things we talk about and the way we view the world is a different world, right? And so... Don't discount that. Don't discount the trauma and frustration of living in this place with that racism all day, every day, and people might respond to you in a way that's tactless. Yeah. Or direct, however you want (laughs) to frame it. Yep, and sometimes that might be a genetic mix and sometimes (laughs) it might just be a really tired black fellow at the time. Um, but I, I opened up with a, a bit of a rushed introduction about pushback against performative acknowledgements to country and the, the, the misplacement of culture, particularly in, in big events. And there's a question here which I'll, I'll kick to you, Nadi, which is, are there more uh, practical ways to acknowledge First Nations culture than the current form of acknowledgement to country? Wow. Well, it's actually, it's really interesting that's come up here because the sort of the birth of the acknowledgement of country happened here with Rhoda. Yeah. And so, like, you know, boomerang style, come back around. I think that the question is wonderful that it's being answered because it means we're looking past where we are, maybe. Uh, I encourage people to go and make meaningful, deep connections with the places they work and live on yeah. and enjoy that place. Mm. And that's an acknowledgement. You don't need stage lights and clock counting you down. You can do that in your own way. And the country will know that you're doing it, which is probably the most important thing. Mm. It'll know by the way, you know, I'm being arty-farty here, but your footsteps will change. Your relationship to that place will be something that is good for it as well as good for you. Mm. And I think if we're all doing that, there's, we've got a little bit of space to have. It's okay that if all we have are kind of a... It's not okay. If we're all doing... If we're all connecting to country in a meaningful way without the insistence of an ownership and allowing different people to have different rights to the place that you're walking on and loving up and sharing that love for then the pressure isn't on. We pay our respects to, you know, elders past and present, emerging elders, all this stuff. We, that then diffuses the weight because that's the only time you hear it, mm. you know. And, you know, just while we're on it, I thought about this when you first spoke. This all, before we begin, before we begin, we pay. No, not mm. before. 
No, this isn't the business we need to do before we start the thing we actually want to do. So, and you can, you can do that by loving those places and caring for those places and sharing that love and allowing the the agency and sovereignty of the of the people that belong there to be part of your concept of those places. And I, I reckon, you know, that's a good thing to start happening if we can all work out our own acknowledgement of country that's not performative, that can be private. Do you think, though, that people understand what we're doing when we're acknowledging country? I don't, I don't think people do and don't... Um, you all live on country. It was like Jason years ago. Remember the tantrums I used to throw about when people would say they were going to Gama? Uh, you know, because of that to romantic... Be to be on yeah. country. To mm. be you know, that romantic You're notion... You're always on country. Of, and we, you live in suburbs called Gaimere mm. and Woolaware and, you know... Well, that, I come from the show, I can't you tell. But, like, you know, you... Kirawe, do you know what I mean? You live... We all live on country and our relationship with country... It, it's not about acknowledging Aboriginal people. It's about acknowledging country mm. and the, our relationship, our reciprocal and relational relationship with mm. country. And we've always said in response to that question, really don't bring that stuff into this politic of our tradition of acknowledging country because walk, chew gum. We've always said it, but we've also said that that means so much to us because you're not just acknowledging elders, past and present, you're acknowledging that it's our relationship with country that you're acknowledging and your own relationship with country. Yeah, I think that's a really nice way to finish and there's a very angry red clock now screaming at me, but um, I think, you know, not to be, try and be too cute about it, but it is... You know, the, the promise of the voice for us is that is that we'll have a voice in a different kind of way. But the invitation to everybody else is is to listen and to hear and to respond. And I think it's the same thing in the way that, you know, the, the invitation to engage more deeply so things like acknowledgement aren't performative or, mm. or an add-on, but they're a genuine part of how we think about this next reset of the national narrative. Can you please uh, thank Nadia and Noreen? And our brother, Jason Glanville. Thanks. Enjoy the rest of the day. Hello. You've been listening to the panel discussion, Where Do We Go From Here? It was held during the recent Antidote Festival at the Sydney Opera House. Joining the conversation were writer, musician, composer and educator Nadi Simpson, as well as Associate Dean Indigenous in the Business Faculty at the University of Technology, Sydney, Noreen Young. The conversation was facilitated by Indigenous consultant Jason Glanville. And to take us out this week, we'll leave you with some music by the Stiff Gins, which of course includes Nardi Simpson. Here they are with the song Going Home. Gently on the breeze Journeyed long to find me From cool rivers and tall trees To where the ocean and sky meet 
scent of summer's gone Stop me and I stand Calling me back A message from the land Realize what I've done I've forgotten them Is it too late to start again? They're waiting for me
That's the show for this week. Join us again next week for more stories from Indigenous Australia. This episode of Speaking Out was produced by Jay McAllister and you can email the program speakingout at abc.net.au and find us on social media via ABC Indigenous. I'm Larissa Berendt.